0: You may be seated and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I have some of the chapter in your bulletin insert on the uh, outline, but I didn't fit all of it. So you'll need your Bible, your electronic version, or your paper version. And in going through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're getting quite a view of life under the sun, what it looks like from a world perspective that doesn't have the overarching view of over-the-sun views that uh, God gives us in His Word. Those come in glimmers and glances between the clouds, but primarily we're just looking at life as it goes on in all of its harsh reality. The Koheleth or the preacher in Ecclesiastes continues to paint with dark and dismal tones this picture of life under the sun. And this constant refrain, under the sun, against is again present in verse 18. It reminds us of the vantage point, or maybe the lens that we look at life under the sun. It's, we look at the emptiness that this word vanity entails. It's used a couple times again in this cha- chapter. Emptiness, meaningless, a, a mist. It's like a vapor you try and catch, and you can't grab hold of it. That's the perspective that's being communicated. And all of our activity, our work, our labors are called toil. It's just a bunch of work. And so this perspective is really harsh because that's the way the world is apart from a Savior. And so this shows the world without the Savior A Savior who we know from the rest of Scripture came and lived a perfect life, who died and was buried and rose again so that we can be forgiven our sins as we trust in faith on Him, and that He's coming again to receive us and take us to be with Him forever. But that's the full perspective that gives us the rest of the story that's yet veiled to the preacher. That story is what we need to bring to interpret the under the sun uh, vantage point. And specifically, this chapter shows us the vanity of life that is lived without God towards worship and towards our wealth. Follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to offer, offer a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in repaying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear." If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at this matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart." Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Holy Word, that it is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it is the truth that You sanctify us by. We know that Your Son Jesus prays that You would sanctify us by the truth. And so, Lord, the truth that we are looking at today in Ecclesiastes 5 is, again, hard truth. Uh, It's difficult to hear It's hard to handle sometimes. It paints quite a dark and difficult picture. But we do thank you for the hope that is there. We thank you for the glimmers of of hope that we read and the knowledge that we have of how you have brought purpose and meaning to life through Christ our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, eyes, and ears to hear and understand your truth. And Lord, by your Spirit's power at work in us, Would you change us from the inside out? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I was kind of struggling with what kind of ties together Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I came back to the first three words, and they keep ringing in my ears. Guard your steps. I want you to think of these words and how they set a tone of this message Imagine for a moment your teenage self. Remember the one that had long hair maybe or just hair? I mean, that was you as a teenager coming before your parents. Let's say that you got the word from your little brother or sister, mom and dad want to talk to you right now. You didn't get a text because we didn't get those back then. You stand in front of mom and dad and you're not in the right frame of mind, at least not from mom and dad's perspective. You're self-confident, you're self-assured, you're too busy to be bothered by another speech or some helpful reminders from mom and dad. Your mindset and the way that you carry yourself says, I got this, don't lecture me now, I got things to do, I got people to see, just, just let me be. And in your vast teenage experience and wisdom, you stand there with your arms crossed and you have your phone in hand ready to go, annoyed and perturbed. Why can't I just get out of here? And then it comes. The response is clear. It's concise. It's eyeball to eyeball, spoken word to you. Now, Mom, probably chimed in here, could have been dad, with a phrase something like, you better watch your attitude. You better check yourself. You want to think carefully about what you're about to say. Tread lightly. Guard your steps. I think that's what the preacher is saying here. Guard your steps. Watch yourself. Let's do a heart check. Let's be careful that we don't see ourselves as all high and mighty and not see ourselves where we truly ought to be. Step back a minute. Take a breath. Lower your defenses. Be open with your ears, not quick to speak with your mouth. Here's some important words to you this morning. What the preacher is going to bring after he says, keep your steps or guard your steps, is this... Understanding that God is in heaven and we're on earth. He sets the stage very clearly. Where God's at is high, lofty, exalted in rule and majesty. And where are you? Here on earth, on this little dirt ball, a bunch of people made of dirt. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Listen to him. Obey him. When we understand that God is in heaven and we are on earth, we must honor Him with our worship and with our wealth. We're going to unpack the first seven verses that deal with our worship. With this attitude of humility, as we come to worship, Derek Kidner, he succinctly summarizes verses 1 to 7. When he describes who the writer's target is, this particular worshiper, He says, the writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never gets around to do what he's volunteered to do for God. Listen up. Guard your steps as you hear this. When you go to the house of God to draw near to listen, it's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The sad part of that attitude in approaching God as high and mighty and above is that you don't even know how foolish you are when you're acting that way. Just like our teenagers don't know how much they don't know when they're speaking to us in ways that they think they know it all. We confess we have that attitude at times and we don't even know it. Don't let our hearts be hasty and utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So there's no way around it. God directly confronts our weak and worthless worship. And what does he call it? He calls it the sacrifice of fools. That's a harsh chastisement. Because we don't even know what we're doing is evil, that it's sinful. But what in particular is he pointing to? He talks about being rash and hasty to speak instead of sitting quiet to listen. Isn't that so much like us? We're ready to answer back, to talk back, to give a response. And half the time, we're not really listening to what's being said. We're just formulating what our next response is going to be. You know how that works. And we can get that same way with God, that God's bringing His Word to us, and we're listening with half an ear, but the other half of our brain is just... Contemplating the excuses, the ways around, the exceptions that I'm going to be to whatever I'm hearing told to me. We're told to guard our steps, to draw near, to listen. This word listen here has the idea to hearken or to listen so as to obey. It's getting you ready to, okay, what's the next step? I'm on the line. I'm waiting for my marching orders. What are your orders, sir? And you hear the Word of God, but you don't act. So, it reminds us of this time when uh, King Saul is rebuked by Samuel. This phrase in verse 1, it says um, that he brought the sacrifice of fools, that he drew near to listen, and to listen is better than to offer sacrifices. If you remember, Saul was directed to wait for Samuel to return so he could do the sacrifice, and he was, he was commanded when he went to battle that he was to destroy everything and not to take anything back for himself. Well, here comes Samuel after Saul had already messed up, and Saul goes into his best teenage mode, and he's ready to talk back right away, starting with some excuses. In, Matthew, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Uh, But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord our God at Gilgal. So I didn't mess up. It was the people did. And they didn't really mess up that bad because actually they brought some sacrifices for God. Isn't that great? Let's have a worship service. And this worship that was being offered up was manipulative towards God, was as a result of disobedience towards God. It was no worship at all. It was hollow and empty. So Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." What's the takeaway here? What do we to learn? We need to listen carefully, humbly, and quietly to listen to the Lord in order to obey. Not just to listen and walk away, like the book of James says, looking in a mirror. And walking away, not changing what you saw in the mirror. To be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. To be the foolish man, the one who built his house on the sand, and when the wind and the waves came, it blew that house down because the foolish man is one who heard these words of Jesus, but he didn't do them. The only wisdom is found in hearing the word of God and doing To obey is better than sacrifice. What else does it say about our worship? We shouldn't be distracted. We shouldn't be hypocritical, not just trying to put on a show. We should know our place and accept it. God's in heaven, you are on earth. This phrase is meant to humble us, to bring us low, and it's really um, kind of baked into our order of worship that we go through this process of understanding God is in heaven. We have this call to worship, and it always involves verses that point to His glory, His splendor, His majesty, His kingly rule, how awesome and holy and mighty He is. And the call to worship that God brings us into a a stark meeting. We, We adore this God and sing a hymn of adoration. Of how great our God is and we praise him to the point of seeing uh oh <laughs> there's something about us though although he is great and high in heaven we're here on earth we're creatures he's the creator we're creatures that are born in sin and struggle with sin and are unclean before him and so we confess that to God and affirm our faith in him and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how when we have that understanding from the get-go, we're actually ready to listen. We're actually prepared to hear from God. Up until that point, the arms crossed, the I got this, talk to the hand kind of attitude is what we can easily bring to God even if we don't show it at all on our outside, right? You're, you're looking, you're paying attention, you have your best clothes on, you're, you look the part but your heart isn't ready to receive the Word of God as it truly is. And so, we are brought low when we come into worship our God. Look at this next admonition about worship in verses four to seven. He talks about when you pay, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay in repaying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, we're not accustomed to making many vows, and part of the worship In the Old Testament in particular was making vows and promises before God. And when you make a vow, it's a special promise that you're making with God as my witness. Now, we are accustomed to hearing and taking membership vows. I'll remind you, our membership vows at Redeemer are, first, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His pleasure, and without hope save in His sovereign mercy? Got it. Yes. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? Do you receive and rest upon Him for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? Yes. He's my Savior. I'm helpless without Him. Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Well, wait a second, now there's something for me to do, not just to confess, but to live out. And we confess Jesus is our Savior, but we also have to live as He is our Lord and our Master. Now here, this is not a try harder, do better sermon. I don't want you to walk away from this with a big guilt trip saying, oh, I don't do and live. God's grace is sufficient for us, and God's Holy Spirit that lives in every single believer is powerful enough to help you to live as a follower of Christ, to keep these vows that you made in the church? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And then do you submit to the government and discipline of the church and promise to, to study its purity and peace? Sure, okay, yeah, I'll do that. You're standing up in front of everybody, a lot of pressure, I made it through. But to really study and promote peace in the church means I've got to resolve difficult things with other people and not just let them lie. It means that I need to seek to be holy, even as Christ is holy, knowing I'll fail, knowing I'll miss the mark, but understanding that's my aim to please Him. Make it your aim to please Him and to follow Him, and by His grace and power at work in you, it transforms you. Those are membership vows, but probably the other kind of vows that we're most familiar with are marriage vows. Do you remember those? I love that we can go to wedding ceremony after wedding ceremony and be reminded. The last wedding ceremony I asked, do you, David, take Michaela to be your wedded wife, and do you promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be her loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as you both shall live. Sound familiar? Because I asked Michaela, Will you take David to be your wedded husband? And do you promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be his loving and faithful wife in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow? as long as you both shall live. Those are just words. Unless you understand what they really are, a vow before God, keep your vows. By God's grace, you can. And it can be such a joy. It can be such a wonderful delight to live as a promise keeper, a vow keeper before your God. Because what you're doing is honoring God in honoring those vows of your marriage. I guess there are other ways that we vow. Maybe we don't formalize them as as such. But you may come to church and and hear a sermon or come to Sunday school and just hear this truth and or talking to a friend and hearing a gentle admonition or challenge. You might say, I'm going to do that. But then you really don't follow through on that. I've done it. I know what it's like. I'm going to read my Bible regularly. I need to be fed the word of God. I'm going to be faithful to pray for people when I tell them I'm going to pray for them. I need to be regular in tithing. I want to be regular in worship in Sunday morning and Sunday night. I want to be a part of my fellowship group. Now, we understand that we're going to fail. We're not going to keep all these vows. But as we commit them to the Lord and as we, that we give them to Him, He can give us the strength that we need and the perseverance we need to endeavor after them. Since God's in heaven and we're on earth, we must honor Him with our worship and with our wealth. Let's consider how the Lord gives us humility to understand our position before Him and how this applies to how we handle our wealth. Verses 8 through 20 have that before us. And in verse 8 to 9, there's this scenario I think we need some help in understanding. It says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there's yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields." That's a head-scratcher right there, especially that last phrase. I've been to a bunch of different commentaries to try and figure out what that means, and let me give you my best understanding of it. Uh, Dalich summarizes the operation of the old Persian Empire like this. There were the satrap, and he stood at the head of state of the officers, and in many cases he fleeced the province to fatten himself. But over the sap traps there stood inspectors who often enough built up their own fortunes by fatal denunciations. And overall stood the king. You see how this works. Small wonder that if the citizen at the bottom of such an edifice found justice, a luxury he could not afford. The guy at the bottom of the heap, he's doing all the work and each official above them, each Form of power above that lowest rung is taking their part and getting rich off of things. What's the answer to that? How do you fix that? That's what we automatically go to. How do I fix the system? That system's broken. I, we got to fix it. Well, the preacher here doesn't talk about fixing it, he doesn't say, let's set up a utopian society where everything does work right. He knows human nature. He knows what under the sun living actually looks out in a societal form, just like this. He doesn't say, revolution, let's throw it all off. Anarchy, that's where we're going to win. That's not the solution. He says, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to a cultivated fields. The best I can put it is, if you have a king that's interested in the commerce that goes on, He wants, from bottom to top, each person to get their cut. That's the best we can hope for. And there's going to be messiness and brokenness in the middle, and especially at the bottom. When you see that, don't be surprised, he says. So that sets the stage for, okay, well, how can we do this right instead of just seeing the brokenness that's around us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 10, here's some personal insights in how to view our wealth. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Well, we know this from the rest of scripture, right? You can't serve God and money as well. The love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Remember, it's not money itself is evil, it's the love of that money. The first principle here is money never satisfies. How much is enough? I've seen quotes from many super-rich individuals, and their common response is like, how much is enough for you? I don't know, but I'll let you know when I get there. Or just a little bit more. That's just the way that we function if we're committed to the love of money. We need more. We need more. Verse 11 says, here's another problem with pursuing wealth in this way. When the goods increase, they increase who eat them. Um, There's going to be leeches and hangers-ons in your life if money is your idol. There's going to be people that say, hey, look at all that that's going on. I want a part of the action. And those deep committed friendships are not there. They're there for what they can get out of you. So be careful about that. Don't love money? Realize that they're going to ha- be hangers-on? Thirdly, rest comes to hard workers, but overindulgent, affluent people get stomach aches and they can't sleep. That's basically what is going on in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, and it's not because he has a full stomach necessarily. It's because he worked faithfully he toiled in contentment whether he eats little or much he has a, a a conscience that's at peace but then the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep the affluent overindulges and they can't eat now i should be careful to point out that everyone here is affluent You don't judge yourself by other people in your zip code. You need to look at the world over and to see how well off we truly are in comparison to the rest of the world. Let's just be honest about that. So all those warnings that we think are for the super rich are actually first to us, and we ought to be careful. In verse 13, oh, I'm sorry, um, the illustration of the um, being full and having the stomach ache. Derek Kidner, he kind of humorously modernizes this illustration when he says this. Consider what he says We offer unconscious comment on it by our modern exercise machines and health clubs. For it is one of our human absurdities to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Verse 13 says, there's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt, and then those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He can't give an inheritance to his son. And that's hard because he works so hard for it, and in the working so hard to get an inheritance to give his son, you know, the cats in the cradle and the silver moon… Little Boy Blue, all that stuff, where you regret at the end of all of your toil and labor that the real treasure was your family. The real treasure was time spent with the Lord. The real treasure was not what you were actually pursuing because you were trying to store up and gain. And the tragedy is it's all lost in a bad adventure. And the reality is we won't take anything with us. It says in verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil. I see a lot of funerals in the cemetery next to us. Every day, there are funerals going on. I have never seen a suitcase being lowered in to go along with the coffin. There's no U-Haul behind any of the hearses that go by. You just can't take it with you. And just the stark reality that... None of what we toil and strive for so hard is ever going to make it with us into eternity. Why do we not change our mindset? Why don't we have a different view? So the summary of living for money and letting it rule you is at the end of verse 16. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. And preacher, we've had enough. This doom and gloom, I'm, I'm sick of it. Let's, do you have a glimmer of light for us? Do you have a sunbeam that can cut through the darkness? And he does. Verses 18 to 20, look at it. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot it's a different view he doesn't have the love of money and that's what he's toiling for he has God's given me the gift of life God's allowed me to toil and to work and when I earn and when I gain I can use that For enjoyment. Verse 19. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and a power to enjoy them and to accept His law and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. It surely is. It doesn't come naturally. Naturally, we want, we strive, we go after because I want it for me. I'm a lover of self. Until we get the gift of God to see that money is not what we ought to strive after, but it can be used to give and to save and to be generous with other people. Then we don't have money holding on to us as a trap. We're using it the way that God intends us to use it. It's a gift, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Do you want joy when you think of money instead of dread? I do. I don't want to be thinking, oh there's not enough, or what am I going to do? Or How? I don't want to be so poor that that's always the constant strain. But you shouldn't imagine that once you have enough, that that really becomes enough. Because that trap of being a lover of money and wanting more is always waiting for us at the other side. The way that we view money is founded on the premise again God is in heaven and we're on earth humble ourselves it's in God's hand to make great to give strength to make to bless with riches and to bring low that should lead us to humility and contentment whatever gives the Lord gives me I'm gonna be content with it Paul says I know how to be have much or how to be in want but I've learned to be at peace, to learn to be content in all things. So we should use money the way God intended. When we do that, we find enjoyment. When you save, when you give, when you spend wisely, you will not have money be the master over of you, but it will be the gift that God's given you. The preacher calls it good. A good and fitting gift meant to be enjoyed, for which we are to be content. Jesus says you can't have two masters. You can't serve God and money. Serve God with your money, and you'll find contentment and joy. Have you been called out today as that teenager a little bit? When I read this, I was called out. It's easy to be like that teenage self and just walk away. I endured the talk. I got the tongue lashing. I had to hear the speech, but now... I'm just gonna go on with life, keep living for me. Who are they to tell me how I should use my time, how I should spend my money? I'm gonna do what I think is best. We can take that prideful, rebellious teenage approach, but I'd encourage you to guard your steps. Check your heart, check your attitude, Be very careful and measured and thoughtful about how you're going to respond. Respond in humility. Respond acknowledging in the fear of the Lord and in the knowledge of He is in heaven and I am humbled here on earth. By God's grace, Lord, help me to keep these vows. Lord, help me to live as your follower, not just living for you as my Savior, but knowing and acknowledging that You are the Lord. Let's humble ourselves to listen to Him and to obey, to offer our… keeping our vows as an offering of praise and of worship to our amazing God. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that You have given us uh, the word of truth that we can order our lives by. Lord, the world has a whole different set of priorities and values And we don't want to get caught up in that. We don't want to get sucked down into that kind of thinking. Lord, we want to worship You, the Creator, and not the creation. We want to make You first and not our own selfish desires and pleasures and pursuits. Lord, rescue us from ourselves so that we can be glorifying You with our lives, that we can be exalting You and honoring You. Please do this in our lives, we pray, for the sake of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number five sixty.